When is a cold a sinus infection, and when does a sinus infection need to be treated? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Richard Rosenfeld. Dr. Rosenfeld is a professor of otolaryngology at State University of New York Health Science Center and chairman, Department of Otolaryngology at Long Island College Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. He is the editor-in-chief of the journal Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, chairs the AAOHNS Guidelines Development Task Force, and is on the Sinusitis Guideline Panel. Today we'll be discussing best practices in sinusitis. Welcome, Dr. Rosenfeld, and thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So when is a cold no longer a cold? In children, uh, uh, the most common way you know it's a sinus infection, it's like a cold that just doesn't go away. A cold typically lasts about 10 days and then should start to gradually improve. When a cold just doesn't go away, even if the child's not too sick, it's generally becoming a sinus infection, which is a bacterial infection. And the most common things the child would have are just a little bit of congestion, coughing, particularly during the daytime. They're just not themselves, a little lethargic, a little under the weather, and often they have really stinky killer breath. Those are the, the main things that would let you know it's a sinus infection. And from a clinical standpoint, that would make the clinical diagnosis? Yes. A cold symptoms that beyond 10 days are not improving and generally accompanied by either daytime cough, a foul odor to the breath, uh, congestion, lethargy, or a combination of those, yes. I've seen studies showing that the incidence of otitis media is going down. Has that affected sinus infections? Now, sinusitis are usually triggered by a cold, there's the decrease in otitis media has largely been due to the uh, Prevnar or the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. There may be a similar effect we're going to see in sinusitis, but I don't think at least yet there's, there are any convincing data that sinusitis has decreased. It only complicates um, uh, 1 or 2% of, of colds, so it's not uh, very common to begin with. Is there a best antibiotic of choice? No. <laughs> every very, very um, uh, simple answer, every antibiotic has been shown comparable in all the heads-up clinical trials. It's basically a matter of um, the child will take. Some taste good, some taste awful, some taste like motor oil. How often you give it, how expensive it is, but for the initial empiric treatment, first time around, they're all comparable. For treatment failures, we could make a case that some might be better than others. In otitis media, it's been recommended to use high-dose amoxicillin. Do you have the same recommendation for sinusitis? Most of the time, yes, but in areas uh, where people are all getting the Prevnar vaccine, which is basically all of the U.S. now, the issue of pneumococcal resistance is not as much as it was when that recommendation was made. So standard dose amoxicillin is an alternative for many children, particularly when there are not very high levels of pneumococcal resistance and in children who have been vaccinated with all four doses of the Prevnar. Uh, unfortunately, I've already seen at least one report on a pneumococcal resistance strain not in the vaccine, and I guess we're already talking about PCV9 or 10 at this point, but you're not concerned that that's a big problem right now. Well, yes, it is. And I believe you're talking about 19A Correct. is the strain that's been reported in Alaska and Rochester and kids with otitis media. The problem is not the vaccine. The vaccine is great. The problem is when you continue to use antibiotics injudiciously in children who have been vaccinated. So if you take vaccinated children and expose them to a lot of unnecessary or frequent antibiotics, you end up with lots of 19A and other tough bugs. Are there other key points in the guidelines for the management of pediatric sinusitis that our audience needs to know about? Sure. Well, the first thing they need to know is that the guidelines are outdated. 
they were published in um, 2000 or 2001, I believe, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and guidelines generally become outdated after about five years. So I, I think there are some limitations to them. They still offer the best way of diagnosing the problem. It's important to emphasize that x-rays are not advised to diagnose pediatric sinusitis. It is a clinical diagnosis. And I think the issue of antibiotic selection is still appropriate as discussed. What's becoming more apparent since the guidelines were published is that similar to otitis media, watchful waiting is very appropriate for many children with properly diagnosed bacterial sinusitis in that there are at least two randomized trials now where they compare placebo to antibiotic in children with these persistent symptoms that haven't gone away after 10 days or longer. And in both instances, with very good antibiotics, there's been no difference in outcomes compared to placebo. So the natural history, I think, is very good, and parents really do have a choice, an opportunity for shared decision-making as to whether or not to take the antibiotic. And I think the sort of safety net prescription or watch-and-wait approach with a backup prescription is probably very viable for this disorder, even though it was not discussed in the guideline uh, about eight or nine years ago. One of the articles I seem to recall used an endpoint of 30 days. But what they didn't show is how many people are better after 10 days, 20 days, and 30 days. So if you have 100 patients and an equal number in each group are better at the end of the month, that's great to know. But if those that are treated are better in 14 days versus 30 days, that's significant. And I think, you know, I'd like a response to that question. The the point you raise is very valid. And it's the distinction between the sort of time to resolution or the time course of the illness versus just an arbitrary cut point at two weeks or three weeks or or four weeks. And in some studies, you are correct that there is a quicker resolution of the symptoms when antibiotics are used. And this can range from a day or two, perhaps a couple of days. The point I would bring up again is the issue of is it worth it? We have so many medical conditions, bacterial disorders, that unless you receive an antibiotic, they could progress, become serious, or even fatal. Is it worth using an antibiotic with its known problems of resistance and side effects to shave a day or two or maybe three at the best scenario off a self-limited illness that tends to get better on its own? I think it's a choice that parents and providers need to make, but at least for my kids, I'd rather stick out the extra day or two of symptoms and avoid any of the antibiotic-related issues if possible. I'd like to pause to welcome those who've just joined us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Richard Rosenfeld, Editor-in-Chief of the journal Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. We're discussing best practices in the treatment of sinusitis. You had mentioned that x-ray for children is not indicated, and I certainly agree with that. I don't use very much CT scanning either. What would be the indications for a CT scan, and how often do you recommend that? A CT scan would only be indicated if, number one, the diagnosis was not clear and you needed to make a very certain diagnosis for whatever reason, And more often, if it was so bad and and so prolonged that you were considering possible surgery to treat the sinus infections by draining the sinuses. Before any endoscopic sinus surgery, we always need a CAT scan. It's the roadmap. It helps us plan surgery. And rarely you have individuals with persistent headaches, facial pain, atypical sinus symptoms, where you just don't know. Is it sinusitis? Is it something else? And in that case, a CAT scan is the most accurate and sensitive way to properly 
either make the diagnosis or eliminate it so you could pursue other avenues. You brought up endoscopic sinus surgery. What are the current indications for sinusitis surgery, and at what point should the patient be referred to the otolaryngologist? The indications are evolving, and the general party line would be that when you fail so-called maximal medical therapy, you've exhausted all of your medical options, and the child is suffering There is clear evidence of sinusitis on the CAT scan at this point. Often there are anatomical changes, restricted drainage pathways, changes in the bony structure of the sinuses that predispose to poor drainage and recurrent infection. When you've reached sort of the end of the line where where you're just fed up with antibiotics and, and the quality of life is so bad for the child, that's the time to consider surgery. But it's very much of a judgment call. You know, in evidence-based medicine, we like to rely on randomized trials and high-quality evidence. We don't have any of those for sinus surgery in kids. But really, the judgment end of it sometimes supersedes the evidence in making those decisions. You mentioned for children. What would the guideline be for an adult? I know we've been primarily focusing on pediatric sinusitis, but in terms of, uh, say, the adolescent or even young adults, which many pediatricians take care of, are the indications there clearer? They're a little clearer. We have more data in the older population. Many of the adult trials include children 12 years and older. And the guideline we just released from the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery last September on this had very clear criteria for diagnosing sinusitis. Similar to the pediatric scenario where you have these sort of prolonged symptoms, 10 days or longer that don't improve, typically nasal discharge accompanied by either congestion or facial pain, pressure, fullness, or both. But there's a second pattern in adults and older children that's worth noting. It's called the so-called double worsening pattern of bacterial sinusitis. This is where someone's sick for a couple of days, you get hit with a cold, you think you're getting better, and then boom, it just you wake up the next day and you're a mess. You're, you're full of pus, you feel awful, you've got some fever. So you've improved and then worsened the double worsening pattern. That's very, very typical of bacterial sinusitis, even less than 10 days into the illness. Ah, that's a very good clinical point. Other other modalities you mentioned, get tired of antibiotics. Any role for nasal steroids in the treatment of sinusitis, either pediatric or adult? There are a couple of recent randomized trials that show some quality of life improvements, benefits of nasal steroid sprays in children and adults with relatively mild forms of sinusitis. And I think if you're looking to avoid antibiotics, particularly in this population of relatively mild illness, steroid sprays can offer some symptomatic uh, relief. There's no role ever been shown for severe sinusitis for more intense forms of illness. There was an article, Antibiotics and Topical Nasal Steroid for Treatment of Acute Maxillary Sinusitis, that appeared in a recent JAMA article by Dr. Ian Williamson et al., and they concluded that among patients with typical features of acute bacterial sinusitis, neither an antibiotic nor a topical steroid alone or in combination are effective in altering the symptom severity, the duration, or the natural history of the condition. I was wondering, you're a JAMA reviewer. Did you review this article? I not only reviewed it, I wrote a letter to the editor that was subsequently published. Which I happen to have seen. (laughs) So go ahead. Basically, the study as conducted was more a study of purulent rhinitis than sinusitis. The authors used a set of criteria called the Berg and Karenfeld criteria, which are about 30 years old, for diagnosing sinusitis clinically. And these were developed in an emergency room setting where patients were referred and generally tend to be quite ill. 
they extrapolated these criteria to a primary care setting. And the end result was a very low specificity for bacterial disease when you look at the predictive value. So their population was more likely a purulent rhinitis population than a real bona fide bacterial sinusitis population. And those are the ones that really should not have been treated in the first place. Exactly. They identified people with a terrific natural history who probably never should have seen a doctor if they didn't happen to be enrolled in a randomized trial. I thank you very much for your insights into the treatment of sinusitis and for being my guest. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I invite you to enjoy listening to our on-demand program library. Visit us at ReachMD.com and register with promotion code RADIO to receive six weeks of free streaming audio for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.